We're in Romans 8. We're going to finish off Romans 8 today. I'll read for us verse 31 down through verse 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? God who justifies? Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus? Who died more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me reread verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? What comes to your mind when you read the word God in that verse is of the utmost importance. A.W. Tozer went so far as to say what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I hesitate to disagree with some a thinker so eminent as A.W. Tozer. But I would venture to say, and in the context I think he would agree, that what we think of God is the second most important thing about us. What God thinks of us is by far the most important thing about us. And what he thinks of us, we've been seeing in Romans 8. And it is wonderful. And yet what we think of God is of enormous practical importance. Just who and what is this God who is for us? The God of verse 31. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. The cosmos which he ordered for his purposes. He is a being that is everywhere present at once across galaxies and throughout the universe. Not part of him here and part of him there as if he were a liquid or a gas, but all of him in every place. We don't understand it. That's what theologians mean when they say that God is omnipresent. But he's not only everywhere present at once, he is every when present at once. Across history and throughout the ages. He was not present at creation he is present. He will not be present at the consummation. He is present. He was not with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For as Jesus said, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living for all are alive to him. He's not spread out across time. Time is stretched out in him. 
That's what we mean when we say God is eternal. This God is capable of doing anything he chooses. At any time he chooses it. But he is incapable of choosing anything that contradicts his nature or his character. That's what we mean when we say God is omnipotent and that he is holy. That God is great, as my mother taught me to pray when I was a little boy, and God is good. This is what the prophet Jeremiah knew when faced with a seemingly impossible situation. He said to God, ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. This God is pursuing a purpose, as we saw last week in verses 28 and 29, and he will achieve it. It's not even hard for him. He will make all things good in our lives, in our world, in our galaxy, in our universe. It's easier to stop the wind from blowing or to stop the earth from turning than it is to stop God from achieving his purpose. When God said, or when Paul said, if God is for us, this is who he's talking about. The compassionate and gracious God. The eternal God who is the almighty. He is the exalted God. The faithful God who is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is God my maker. God my rock. God my savior. God my stronghold. He is the God who sees me. Who is also God my father and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the being Paul was talking about in verse 28, the one who makes all things work together for good. This is the God, verse 31, who is for us. If he is for us, who can be against us? Now that's a rhetorical question, isn't it? The obvious answer is no one and no thing can be against us if this God is for us. The God who spins quarks and spins galaxies with ease. Who dances like Fred Astaire up and down the staircase, the spiral staircase of our DNA. Who sees the end from the very beginning and is entirely present at each moment in between and at each place everywhere. If that God is for us and he is, what can be against us? He is for us if we are for his son. He is God for us as the father, God with us as the son, and God in us as the spirit, one God existing eternally as three and yet always being one. If we know this God, though our knowledge is but the tip of the proverbial iceberg, the merest drop in an unfathomable ocean, If we know this God to be our God, we know that nothing and no one can be against us. The church father, John Chrysostom, knew this. Stories told about how Empress Eudoxia and Emperor Arcadius, by the way, both Christians, this is now 400 AD, so the Roman Empire is... is, um, capital is in Constantinople, and these people are Christians, but, but there's been a power play against John Chrysostom, who is a bishop of Constantinople, and he has made an enemy of the empress by his harsh criticism of her. 
In response, she threatens to banish him, but Chrysostom is unmoved. She says, she says I will banish you, and he says to her, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. Where are you going to send me? But I can kill you, she said. No, you can't, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then I'll take away your treasure, she said. No, you can't, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is also there. Then I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you can't, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there's nothing you can do to harm me. Whether all the details of that conversation are accurate, I don't know. But the idea expressed is true. John Chrysostom was banished in 404 AD, but because God was for him, even banishment couldn't be against him. So often is the case in Paul's writings. He introduces an idea, and then he unpacks it. He introduces it, and then he questions it, and he looks at it from one perspective and then another. In this passage, the idea is, if God is for us, who, and that's the particle in Greek, tis, and it could also be what, what can be against us? Rather than simply answering the question, Paul wants his readers to answer it for themselves, because he knows that people learn best from truths that enter their own minds and then come out of their own mouths. So instead of simply giving us the answer to his question, he asks his readers a series of questions so they'll perceive the truth for themselves and maybe even verbalize it. So there is the question in verse 32. Verse 31, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That question is intended to cast people's minds back to Abraham, who, Genesis 22, did not spare his own son. A man who will not withhold his own son won't hold anything back. God said as much to Abraham at the time. And a God who will not withhold his son won't hold anything back either. Will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now, does that all things ring a bell for you? Remember what Paul has just said a couple of sentences ago? All things work together for good, verse 28, to conform us to the image of his son, verse 29. And now in verse 32, he mentions all things again. But this time, from a different perspective. This time, God gives us all things. Here they are. He gives us all things and expects us to make use of them, to make them our own, to use them in reaching the goal of becoming like Christ. And this is no less true when they're hard things than when they're easy things. When they're painful things than when they're pleasant things. And Paul knew this from personal experience. To the Philippians, he said, he, and he's talking about God, has graciously given us, that's the same word that we have in this verse, 
has graciously given us on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Paul saw suffering as one of those all things that God gives his loved ones to help them toward the goal of becoming like Christ. Do you realize what that means? It means when the car won't start, when the girlfriend leaves, when the argument ensues, when the company downsizes, when death is pounding at your door, God says, my child, I'll give you this. Own it. Take dominion over it. Use it for good. Use it to become like your Lord and namesake. And I'll stay with you and help. Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? There's another rhetorical question for Paul's readers to answer. And I think the next line was also originally a question, which is the most straightforward way of taking the Greek in which the NIV or the NRSV gives us a marginal reading. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? God, who justifies? Paul's readers would think, no, the one who has the right to bring charges is the one who has already justified me. Verse 34, who is he that condemns? Once again, I think the next line was originally intended to be a question and should be read like this. Who is he that condemns? Jesus who died? More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us? Will he condemn us? The answer is obviously no. The one who has the right to condemn us, Jesus, is the one who sacrificed himself so we wouldn't be condemned. Further, he now intercedes with God as our advocate. Will he condemn us? Not a chance. Paul's readers answer to themselves, he would never do that. See, this passage is the flip side of chapter 3, where Paul had us all in court facing the judgment of God without a word to say in our defense. Speechless. Chapter 3, verse 19, that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. But here, it's the mouths of our accusers that are silenced. No one dares to bring an accusation against us because the judge's son is interceding with his father on our behalf. What a place to be in. Um, verse 35, there's a change of perspective. Verses 33 and 34 had us back in the courtroom where no one dares to bring an accusation but in verse 35, we're out in the world facing adversaries that threaten to separate us from God's love. In a sense, these three verses sum up the entire chapter. Verses 33 and 34 expound the opening theme of the chapter, no condemnation. While verse 35 launches the closing theme of the chapter, no separation. This whole chapter begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation because of the God who gave us his son. Verse 35 gives us yet another question as readers to answer for ourselves. Who, again, or what, shall separate us from the love of God? And once again, Paul answers the question or allows his readers to answer the question by giving another question. 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No one knew more about trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger than Paul. And he was going to find out about the sword before much more time elapsed. The word translated trouble refers to pressure. It's the walls are closing in kind of pressure. Time is running out. Hardship could be rendered tight places. Those times when you don't like the situation you're in, but you feel like there's no way out of it. Nakedness can simply mean a lack of decent clothing. Paul asks the question, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then invites all of those candidates to step forward. See, he doesn't deny that we may have to face them. He doesn't deny that they're unpleasant. He's already admitted that life is hard, acknowledged that we sometimes groan. Here he quotes Psalm 44, which is a desperate psalm of lament. For your sake we're put on to death all day long. We're considered a slaughterhouse sheep. He's not sugarcoating any of this. But see, he's already faced these things himself. And he knows from personal experience that none of them can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 38, he goes even further. Not only can these things not separate us from Christ's love, nothing can. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, by the way, that word convinced means that he's come to think this after time through thoughtful reasoning and light of his situation. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some people are afraid to die. I've met them. I've gone into their room and they've rolled over because they saw me as the harbinger of death. That's not funny. Who's laughing at that? <laughs> I could see you're picturing me with this, what, the, the sigh, sigh, you know, and the robe and the... <laughs> but some people are afraid of death. But I've met more who are afraid of life. But Paul says, neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. Some people struggle with terrible guilt in the presence over, over things they've done in the past, while other people struggle with terrible fears in the presence over what might happen in the future. But Paul says that neither the present nor the future can separate us from the love of God. Some people believe their destiny is determined by forces outside their control. But Paul says, neither height nor depth will be able to separate us from the love of God. Height and depth were astrological terms that had to do with the star's declension. In Paul's day, some Jews, but almost all Gentiles, believed their lives were controlled by the stars, that they were hostages of fate. But Paul says, nonsense. The stars will never separate us from the God who hung them in the skies. They, too, are part of the all things that serve him. You know what this means? 
It means counter to what we've been taught, creation is a safe place. Well, there's plenty of trouble out there. It would be foolish to deny it. There's hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. There's fire and there's earthquakes and there are hurricanes. There are past problems, there are present pains, and there are future uncertainties. There is life and there is death. There is height and there is depth, but there is nothing. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is now no condemnation and there will never be any separation for God's children. They are safe. You might say, and it would be true, that we frequently do not feel safe. But I suspect that has more to do with the way we think about things and the way things are. The child who is about to jump into the pool for the first time doesn't feel safe. Even though his dad is standing right there ready to catch him in his arms. And he's as safe as he would be in his own bed. He just doesn't know it. And the man who is about to die whether knowingly in a hospital bed or unknowingly behind the wheel of a car, is about to be caught safely in his father's arms if he loves God and is called according to his purpose. And that brings us to our application. When Paul wrote about the security of Jesus' people, he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't writing from an ivory tower, but from a battlefield. He himself faced all the adversaries that he mentions in verse 35. He had proof that nothing could separate him from God's love. He knew from experience that nothing could finally and truly be against him when God was for him. But how did he come to know this? How was he convinced of these things? How did he get to this place? He knew it first of all. Because he knew the scriptures. He read them, studied them, thought about them, talked about them, and memorized them. After a while, his brain began to travel on pathways formed by biblical truths. This passage is just one of many in Paul's writings that make that clear. Just in verses 32 through 36, Paul alludes or quotes from Genesis 22, Isaiah 50, Psalm 44, and Isaiah 53. These scriptural tracts and many, many more besides were the pathways along which his quick mind traveled. Paul thought God was for him because he thought biblically. And that didn't happen by accident. He thought biblically because he read, listened to, contemplated, and talked with others about the Bible. It must be rare indeed for someone who does none of those things to have the confidence Paul had that we can have. If you and I are going to be confident like him, if we're going to be convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, if we're going to be convinced that nothing can be against us when God is for us, 
we're going to have to think like Paul, which means we're going to have to learn the scriptures like Paul. What we can do is read or listen to the Bible regularly, think about what we've read or listened to, and join with others to talk about what we've been thinking. When Gordon McDonald was in college prep school, Stony Brook, New York, he was required to memorize passages of scripture. This is a long time ago. One of those passages was Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. He memorized that text in 1957. 56 years later, a couple years ago, when his doctor's office called to tell him he had a tumor in the lining of his brain, the earth moved and the mountains were carried into the midst of the sea. But when he hung up the phone, he already had the words, God is our refuge and strength, a present help in time of trouble running through his mind. Know the scriptures. But knowing scripture isn't the whole story. Paul didn't just have the kind of confidence he had because he knew the scriptures. He knew them because he lived the scriptures. Because he acted on what he knew. What Paul knew in his head, he put on the line in his life. He not only knew what God had done for Abraham, he knew what God had done for him. The confidence Paul has been talking about envelops a life, not just a brain. It's lived, not merely thought. If you want to have the kind of I will overcome no matter what happens confidence that we see here and that many Christians have experienced. You must put what you know in your head on the line in your life. And on any given Sunday, I know God's calling some people to do that and they know it too. They know God's been speaking to them about doing something. Look, the need to obey God is not just a requirement. It is an opportunity, an opportunity to develop unshakable confidence and abiding joy. But choosing to be confident is like choosing to be a millionaire. If the initial choice is going to mean something, it must be followed up by a thousand other choices that make it so. So choose to read and think about and memorize scripture. Choose to do what you know God wants you to do. It's it's as you make those choices that confidence forms. It forms like a coral reef, slowly, one layer at a time. But the day will come when that will be unbreakable. When that will be the habitat in which you live and love and thrive when you know that the Lord is at your right hand and that you cannot be shaken. All right, let's pray. What then shall we say in response to all this?
except God make it so in our lives. Complete the work you've begun. And do it for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen.